Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and a very, very warm welcome to each and every one of you here to St. Paul's this evening. It's great to have all of you here. And, of course, I'm going to introduce the highlight of the evening to you in just a moment. But for those of you who've not been to one of our events here before, let me quickly uh, just explain how it works. In a moment, Richard Coles will speak about his journey to faith, and he will speak for about 30 minutes or so, and then we have plenty of time for you to ask your own questions. If you have a question, please write it on the back of your program and hold it up to be collected, and we will go around collecting the questions until about 7.40. So you can ask your question anytime you like, just hold up your white piece of paper. Do, though, please keep them brief and legible. And contrary to popular opinion, the laptop in front of me is not for me to catch up on strictly, but uh, it is actually because your questions will then come through to me up here, and I'll try and ask as many as I can, trying also to spot, of course, recurring themes in them. We're also taking questions via Twitter, using the hashtag FathomlessRiches. If you'd like to send us your question through your mobile phone, just type in your question and include hashtag FathomlessRiches and we'll find it. We'll end by 8 o'clock and then you will have an opportunity to buy a copy of the book at an attractively reduced <laughs> price up here <laughs> under the dome and Richard's very kindly agreed to sign copies. And so it gives me huge pleasure to introduce Richard Coles. Richard, as many of you will know, is the only priest in the Church of England to have a number one hit single. <laughs> Half of the communards, his 1980s were as 1980s as anyone's could be, <laughs> with a great deal of success and excess. Atheism and politics, money, drugs and sex which was great preparation for ministry in the Church of England. <laughs> By 30, he'd tried a lot of the world and found himself just down the road from here in St. Albans, Hoban, where he had what he describes as a classic Protestant conversion. <laughs> I was pierced to the soul, and it was as if the bands constricting my chest broke and fell away and I could breathe. Ten years later, though not without more adventures, he was ordained in the Church of England and now is the parish priest of St. Mary the Virgin in Findon, Northamptonshire. He's also the presenter of BBC Radio 4's Saturday Live programme, a regular on various TV shows, a favourite at Greenbelt, and has more Twitter followers than the Archbishop of Canterbury. <laughs> Although the Pope has pipped him, I have to say. And his memoir, Fathomless Riches, was published last month to great reviews. The book is a confession of faith in the tradition, really, of St. Augustine, finding God and grace through our human story by a careful listening to our life, however rackety, however chaotic. It takes him up to ordination. And part two, which he describes as going to be less racy, is planned. 
I think a term on General Synod would hot things up a bit <laughs> and rival Jackie Collins. <laughs> Richard is, of course, one of the most high-profile Christians in this country. And mostly, of course, we tend to hear in the press from the centre and from the leadership of the church. But Richard, I think, opens the door of what the real life of faith and the church look like. More personal, more joyful and wry, rooted in relationships and curiosity and a sense of what's just, rather than all those cautious guidelines and institutional truth that too quickly curdle any interest. He's really just quick to dispel illusions, but without making us disillusioned. And that's a great gift. His book makes us reflect on our own stories, and it opens a conversation about the plausibility of faith and the generosity of God being even more reckless than we can be. I think this is ragu theology. God opening the fridge and just using what's there. <laughs> it's a book as full of hope as it is of self-scrutiny. And tonight we've asked Richard to tell us more about that conversion and explore with us his faith in God. So would you please welcome that veritable peach in the orchard of clerical delight, <laughs> Richard Coles. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you, Bob. <laughs> Thank you very much, Mark. Normally, the only time uh, a priest like me would find himself standing on this spot would be when he was about to be consecrated bishop. That was vanishingly unlikely before this book got published, but now. <laughs> so forgive me if I just savor it for a moment, will you? Because it's the nearest I'm going to get. Um, fathomless riches or how I went from pop to pulpit, it really began in two ways. One was uh, due to my indefatigable attentions to Twitter, which has become uh, a large part of my life. I, didn't, I never meant to be on Twitter, but when I got the job presenting Saturday Live, the BBC insisted um, I did start tweeting. I thought, more typing, just what I need. Um, but through that, I uh, encountered someone called Gillian Stern, who's a book editor. And she thought from my tweets that there might be uh, the possibility of something longer. So she said, have you thought of writing a book? Around this time, I, was, I started doing after-dinner speaking. And uh, they, they said, um, you need a USP. And the USP is, of course, I am the only vicar to have had a number one record. Well, I say that I was at uh, St. Albans the other night and I went to the Cellarer's Feast and uh, another clergyman came up to me in clericals and said, oh, hello, do you remember me? And I thought, no. And uh, I said, where are you? And he said, oh, I'm vicar of Hitchin. And I said, I don't think I've been to Hitchin. And he said, I was in pig bag in the 1980s. <laughs> do you remember Papa's got a brand, brand new pig bag? Only got to number six. <laughs> People did seem to be uh, curious about how I did make that journey from uh, being in a pop band to ascending a pulpit and being uh, a priest of the Church of England. So really it was an attempt to answer that question. And as soon as I began seriously to try to answer that question, I realized that it was a question that needed as full an answer as I can give. One of the phrases that has most often come up when people describe the book has been searingly honest, which I think is a kind way of saying vicar TMI. Yeah. 
Um, and I did sort of think quite carefully about how much I I wanted to give uh, when I was writing it. But I did think that, it is, as Mark rightly says, it's a story of a conversion, and you need to know where you're converting from as well as what you're converting to, if you see what I mean. So I have been uh, as candid as I possibly could be. Um, I had the unforgettable experience of taking the book when it was finished round to my mum. <laughs> and uh, she said, anything I need to know, darling? And I said, just don't forget to take your beta blockers. But she's still speaking to me, so that was obviously important. Um, <clears throat> it begins in Northamptonshire, which is funnily enough where I am now as a parish priest. I was born there the son of a shoe manufacturer who was the son of a shoe manufacturer who was the son of a shoe manufacturer in that classic Middle England manufacturing kind of family way. Uh, and I went off to public school, to, the, to Wellingborough, uh, the archetypal minor public school where my father had gone, uh, where my brothers had gone, where my cousin had gone, where my grandfather had gone, and so on. And it was there that really I first came into contact with the culture and tradition of the Church of England. So I thought I might just read you something, particularly bearing in mind that I've just um, been here at Evensong, to give you an idea about where uh, I first dipped my toe into the saving rill of Christian faith. We had school on Saturdays, the afternoons filled with the misery of sport, and on Sundays in chapel for my brothers and I, we had been joined by Coles Minimus, my younger brother Will, were choristers. It was in the choir stalls that I acquired my love of the Anglican choral tradition, and a sense, long dormant, that I was more at home in it than anywhere else. We had chapel every morning, congregational practice on Fridays, which comes rushing back to me whenever I preach at public schools on Sunday evenings and hear the more roistering hymns of ancient and modern sung unselfconsciously and very loudly by teenage boys and now girls, and there was none of that back then. I had quite a good voice, and with my competitive nature, clawed my way to become head chorister, singing the solo of Once in Royal David City at the candlelit carol service at the end of the awesome term, a rather shrill, if confident, performance, wobbling a little when I saw wax from a candle dripping on a lady's hat and forming a little flourish of what looked like icing on its crown. We sang our way through carols for choirs, the Green Book in Advent and for Christmas, and Oxford Easy Anthems through the year, a book we had to place in our folders for the director of music, Mr. Osler, did not want the word easy to be displayed. We sang also the evening canticles, printed on yellowing and tatty paper, T. Tertius Noble in A minor, Stanford in B flat, Dyson in F, names which were as redolent of childhood for me as Spangles, Aztec, and Trebor Sherbet Fountains. It was not simply the music, it was the atmosphere of chapel. As I grew more proficient on the piano, I started to play the organ, which gave me an excuse to be in chapel whenever I was free. I felt then, as I feel now in an empty church, a release from anxiety, a sense of peace, a refuge from trials, a feeling I wish I'd paid more attention to back then. But I was full of resistance to the blandishments and iniquities of religion and left it unexamined. Where Christianity was more explicit, I was at first puzzled and then indignant. No change there. There was a stained glass window at the west end of the chapel, and whenever we left, we left beneath it. It showed a scene from the Gospel of Luke, Christ among the doctors, when the boy Jesus was found by his parents astounding the men of learning at the temple with his teaching. 
Perhaps it was meant to present to us an improving, if impossible, model of pedagogic excellence. But the text written underneath from the old authorized version of the Bible was, Wist ye not that I should be about my father's business? Or as a modern translation puts it, Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? As a boy, I completely misunderstood it, and day after day left chapel thinking it said, wish ye not that I should be about my father's business, and thought dimly that it was a divine injunction against pursuing a career in the shoe manufacturing industry. <laughs> Good advice as it turned out. Um, I'll give you just a little bit extra from childhood, if I may, just to give you a sense of the kind of child I was. I was um, always, from a very early age, very fond of performance, and much as today, did not exactly flinch should the spotlight fall on me. Uh, this was evidence very early on. I think I'm about six or seven in this bit here. I was by now, at, uh, when I was young, before I went to prep school, I went to St. Peter's at a house called Sunnylands in Kettering, independent preschool for boys and girls. I was certainly creative, throwing myself wholeheartedly into music and movement, which Miss Brown led from a glowing radiogram. We had to prance around the music room, interpreting her record choices with the body in motion and less frequently repose. I rather excelled at this, both at home and at school. My mother had a group of friends who would meet in our sitting room for knit and natter. At one end, French windows opened onto a sunroom, and these I would fling open to appear, dressed in a bedspread, performing an interpretive dance to my Bonnie Lies Over the Ocean. <laughs> I don't remember their reaction. Perhaps they just knitted and nattered until I went away. But I wasn't really interested in their reaction. I was overwhelmed by the enchantment of my own choreography, its spell broken only by my mother snapping, Oh, Richard, stop showing off! That was a refrain I was to hear countless times uh, as I grew up. School came along, I was in the choir. I think I adapted quite readily to that, although the content of it meant nothing. Uh, and I was, uh, thought that my future would be pretty much uh, how it had appeared to my parents, my father in particular, when he was a boy. And then two things happened. One was the collapse of the manufacturing sector in British industry, and there was no shoe industry for me to go into. And the second was puberty, which hit me rather like a storm. And in the midst of that, I realized that I was gay. Realizing that you were gay in an all-boys public school in England in the 1970s was not something uh, that you would look upon without a certain degree of discomposure. And the thought of, of that becoming widely known was an unthinkable thought. And so like lots of people with that kind of background, uh, I grew up into adolescence. Uh, with this sense of sort of keeping a sort of dark secret. It did, however, affect my behavior in all sorts of other ways, and I became rather Bolshevik, at least by English public school standards, not very Bolshevik at all. But I did finally get caught smoking for the last and final time, and the headmaster suggested to my mother that I seek fresh academic challenges, I think was the expression. My mother rather brilliantly found uh, an FE college in Stratford-on-Avon where I could study drama, vocation, and do some A-levels, including a theatre studies A-level, that invaluable piece of academic testimonial. Um, I mustn't be rude about that. Someone told me off about that the other day. Anyway. Um, so off I went to Stratford-on-Avon and had two spectacular years there, learning that I was an appalling actor. If I was in a tragedy, I'd come on stage and everyone would laugh. And if I was in a, tragedy, in a comedy, I'd come on stage and everyone would weep. So it was uh, a useful uh, introduction 
for reasons to not to proceed as an actor. But the music came together with the theatre then, and I started doing theatre music, and after... Uh, a rather spectacular nervous breakdown in the middle of those two years where I spent one of the most fascinating summers of my life in a psychiatric hospital, St Andrews, Northampton. If you're going to have a nervous breakdown, I heartily recommend St Andrews, Northampton as a place to have it, uh, which was a very congenial liberal culture. And I met someone there who said, why don't you move down to London? Another stroke of good fortune was I got run over on my bicycle just after my 18th birthday. And the silver lining to that cloud was a cheque for criminal injuries compensation, 2,000 quid in 1980 when I was 18. I did what all people would do with that amount of money at that time. I got my ears pierced. But it was also my ticket to London. And so with the contact I'd made at St Andrews with this money, I, like so many other people, ran away to London. And like a lot of gay men and gay women in their teens at the end of the 70s, beginning of the 80s, uh, it was a sort of exciting time to be around. You could run away to London. The first, uh, the consolidated gains of the gay liberation movement had created space where you could be without that being something too covert or too awful. And there was a sort of air of liberation list was it in that dawn to be alive. Um, but also you could simply do it. You could sign on and you could get into a hard to let flat or a squat or something. And so I arrived in King's Cross hopelessly naive, not understanding why all these ladies like to gather on the street corner at night where there was no bus stop. Um, <coughs> I soon worked out why. And it was then that I met Jimmy Somerville, another runaway to London, in his case from a very tough background, working class background in Glasgow. He and I got together, formed a group of friends around us and started something which sociologists now call the alternative gay scene. Um, it was actually just a group of people who were a bit younger in their late teens who'd come through punk music and everything that was associated with that, the kind of cultural revolution of that. Uh, but we're also gay and uh, we started a club night on a Wednesday night in a pub in Islington and lots of people went to that. It was a creative environment and from that, after various adventures and misadventures, Jimmy and I found ourselves in a band. Bronski Beat happened. Jimmy had this most spectacular... I can't go to Evensong and hear a boy treble without feeling the sort of hairs on the back of my neck rise as when I first heard Jimmy sing because he's got a very deep and gruff Glaswegian voice. And yet when he opens his mouth to sing, this extraordinary choir boy-like uh, voice, but with a sort of adult vulnerability and an adult power came out. I have to say, there the resemblance between Jimmy and a choir boy rather firmly ended. Um, but anyway, we threw in our lot together. Bronski Beat happened. I went to play saxophone in Bronski Beat. And then Jimmy said, do you want to form a new band with me? And thus the Communards was born, the band which went on to be, um, well, Bronski Beat was already very successful. And the Communards had the uh, biggest selling single of 1986, Don't Leave Me This Way. I got a royalty statement for it from Ecuador for 67 pence uh, at the last quarter. So even nearly 30 years later, it's still keeping me in a life of luxury. <laughs> so all of a sudden, my life again changed, and I found myself in this extraordinary lottery-win-like transformation of being in a very successful pop band. Not for me, the going up and down the M6 in the back of a van, but straight in at the top, as it were. And so uh, I found myself 
how unprepared I was for it. When you sign to a major record label, they not only give you a check for a dizzying amount of money, they also give you a present as a sort of hello, a golden hello. Most people ask for a sports car or a motorbike. I ask for a washer-dryer. <laughs> the most durable thing I ever got out of the music industry, I have to say. But to give you an idea about the sort of strangeness of that sort of life, um, one Christmas, the Christmas of 1986, we were really based in New York because we were working there recording. Uh, we'd already had this big success, the biggest single of the year, and that had taken off around the world. And then we'd been called away to La Réunion in the Indian Ocean to do the French equivalent of a sort of top of the pops, but they used to rather wisely hold it on some of their dependent territories in the Indian Ocean or the Caribbean, which somehow proved more appealing than going to Rill, as the BBC used to do. Anyway, we'd been in uh, La Réunion, and then we had to fly on to New York to work via Paris. We landed in New York on a freezing cold evening, and it was snowing hard as our stretched limousine lumbered towards the city. On TV in the car was another snowstorm from It's a Wonderful Life, the best Christmas film of all, but again rather disorienting, considering we'd started our journey on a tropical island. By now I felt like we were in our third continent and third climate in a single time zone length and day. And I remember that night thinking that I'd had mango for breakfast, steak frites in Paris for lunch, and a slice of pizza in New York for supper. It was December. Trucks with giant menorahs were driving round to mark the Jewish festival of Hanukkah. Skaters were skating in front of the Rockefeller building, and Christmas was not long off. That night, we walked back to our apartment in Midtown, and Jimmy had one of the new little video cameras that had just come on the market, and he shot a great plume of, plume of steam rising from a pipe, striped in red and white, sticking up out of the street. You see them everywhere in Manhattan. And then these two drag queens appeared out of the shadows and started dancing around in and out of the plume like a steam-age dance of the seven veils. That Christmas, our gang hit the bars like we did in London, in force, heart-drinking, falling over by nine in a way that horrified the more seemly New Yorkers used to less restrictive licensing laws. By the time we got in, nearer dawn than dusk, things got not exactly orgiastic, but there were more people than beds, and you never quite knew who'd be under the covers and what would transpire. For me, one night, it was Mark Ashton. Mark, I think, understood the pressures of doing what we were doing, especially the pressures of working with Jimmy, so volatile and unbiddable, and we connected in a way we had not before. Because of that, we slightly split off from the others and spent time together, talking a lot. And then on Christmas Eve, he said, do you fancy going to midnight mass? I had no idea where the impulse for that had come from, but I said yes. And so we headed out into the dark, snowy night for St. Patrick's on Fifth Avenue. When we got there, we discovered that the sacrament was by ticket only, and there was no way we could get in. But a rather grand lady offered us hers, and in we went and sat incongruously beside what looked to me like the Kennedys in furs and diamonds, us in DMs and 501s. 
That was the last Christmas before something came along that was to transform all our lives. It was the 80s for me, the best of times, but the worst of times. The best of times, the success of pop music, the intense camaraderie of the group of people that came out of. The sense of vindication that as young gay men trying to define ourselves rather than be defined, that was something that was working. And then, of course, HIV arrived and hit our circle uh, with uh, the most dreadful, catastrophic impact. Mark Ashton, who I just mentioned there, who some of you have seen the film Pride, you know, it's about this extraordinary group of lesbians and gay men who adopted a Welsh pit village during the miners' strike of 84, 85, and a hugely unlikely and wonderful friendship emerged from that. Mark was one of the leaders of that, and we were part of that. And then Mark, not long after that Christmas in the February, uh, was the first of our circle to die of AIDS. The sort of, uh, I mean, it was absurd. These were young men in their 20s who were stricken by things that were like, sounded like a medieval plague and surrounded by the full resources of medical science and the National Health Service. We could do nothing but watch helplessly as people died. And I have a photograph from 1984 of a party we all went to in North London and a group of us sitting around rugs at a picnic. And I'm the only gay man in that photograph who's still alive. It was a terrible, terrible time. And that, of course, created turbulence. Pop music itself, turbulent enough, but to be dealing also with the catastrophe of HIV and AIDS and the damage that was doing to us and to those around us um, was too much for me. I never really wanted to be in a pop band. I never really wanted to be in a pop band, even when I was in a pop band, let alone before. And I realized that the time was called on that. So Jimmy and I stopped working together, and I thought I'd take a year out to kind of get used to the new reality, work out what to do next, and to deal also to be part of a group of people who were suffering this terrible tragedy. To be 28 or 29 as I was then, to have more money than I knew what to do with and not to have to work, not always the healthiest environment for things to work out. And I had a lost year, basically, of sex and drugs if not rock and roll, then 80s synth pop, if I can put it that way. Um, the first six months of that year was the most fun I've ever had. The last six months of that year I don't really remember at all, except at the end of it, sort of coming to in a moment of realisation and seeing myself reflected in the window on a tube train when I'd been out for three days and had no knowledge of where I'd been and how I'd got there and thinking, if you don't stop, you will die. And that was a sort of moment of realisation. And it was really in the sort of aftermath of that that I got religious twinges. I was completely unprepared for religious twinges. I knew the lie of the land. I had a memory, like a childhood memory, of being in a choir and of that feeling of church and chapel. But the church was the enemy, um, implacably hostile to people like me. And the idea that it might have something to offer was something that was extremely uh, surprising, to say the least. One thing led to another. I went to see someone. Oh, the first thing I did to do was go and see a psychiatrist, because obviously I thought religious twinges were a prelude to insanity. But the psychiatrist very sensibly sent me to a wonderful person, Sarah Maitland, who some of you may know through her writing. And she directed me to St. Albans Hoban, just up the road. And uh, I'll just read you part of that, if I may. What happened to me? 11 o'clock, solemn high mass, St. Albans Hoban. 
I sat and looked around and felt like I'd walked into entirely the wrong place. I certainly stood out. I was wearing a scarlet puffer jacket, jeans, and a pair of very complicated trainers. Every other single male I could see was wearing a sports jacket, polished shoes, and the air of a connoisseur. I had no idea what I was doing, but hoped this was not too obvious, as I did not want anyone to try to help me through the service. No danger of that at St. Albans Hoban. <laughs> <laughs> the mass got underway, with a mysterious clanking of chains and rustling of damasks and wheezing of organ, and we stood and sang as the clergy and servers formed up and processed in from behind me, led by a thoroughfare swinging a silver pot of smoking incense. The effect was amazing. It was Panavision. It was Grand Opera. It was as odoriferous as Christmas. Sound and colour and smell and scale, conjuring a sacredness and mystery that was both awe-inspiring and moving. We sang, we stood, we sat, we bowed our heads in unpredictable places, we knelt, and then something extraordinary happened. Three robed men stood at the altar, and the one in the centre lifted with both hands a small white disc. The thoroughfare raised his smoking silver pot. A skein began to rise in the sunlight, slanting through a window, and a chime rang out unexpectedly. I think it was the chime that roused me, like the dinner bell roused Pavlov's dog. Or maybe it was the scent of the incense straight into the limbic system, like the madeline on Proust's lips. But I was pierced to the soul at that moment. And then it was as if iron bands constricting my chest broke and fell away and I could breathe. And a shutter was flung open and light flooded in and I could see and I wept and wept. Sometime later, familiarising myself with the breadth of English Christian experience, I came across Charles Wesley's thumping Protestant hymn, And Can It Be?, I woke, the dungeon flamed with light, my chains fell off, my heart was free, I rose, went forth, and followed thee. And I realised that the imagery of the dungeon flooding with light and the breaking chains have a longer heritage than what happened to me that Sunday morning in Hoban in 1990. Indeed, I was to discover that it goes back further to the New Testament itself and another witless man in a mess. And I realised too that I was one of the very few people in the Church of England to have gone to solemn high mass at St. Albans Hoban and there experienced a classic Protestant conversion. <laughs> and that was really the sort of fulcrum for, it's the fulcrum of the book in a sense, it was one of those moments of conversion, absolutely uh, the kind of heightened poetry as I imagine Paul experienced on the road to Damascus or Moses as he turned to the miracle of the lit bush or as John Newton experienced as he left slavery behind and went into uh, Christian ministry. Of course, we live our lives in prose, not in poetry, and the challenge thereafter is to sustain that life of faith, to sustain uh, faithfulness to that vision, while at the same time living in the sometimes corrosive and eroding realities of not only life, but also the Church of England. That's what theological college is for. You go in there thinking you're going to build the kingdom of God, you come out realising you're handing out hymn books. I went to Murfield Theological College in Yorkshire. I once described it as Hogwarts if written by Kafka. Which was it. 
<laughs> it was an amazing place. I had an extraordinary time there. But really, um, it was also my first year there was quite dark, and I've written about that with as much candor uh, as I could. Um, and I just want to just, the last passage from the book, if I may, if I've got time, Mark, is just read you a little bit from that. So I'd gone in, I was by now working for the BBC. I had a program on Radio 3, which I absolutely loved. It was a late night arts magazine program. My father has a lifelong issue with insomnia, cured the instant my voice would come on air. But it was a lovely, lovely job, and I, and I was very happy there, and I didn't want to leave it. But I leave it, I did. I went to a selection conference by some strange, I'd like to say miracle, I got through, uh, and off I went to Murfield. And it was really a sort of confrontation with the reality of that was the uh, kind of drenching draft of cold water I needed to uh, rouse me from my romantic slumber. Advent is traditionally a time for repentance, so we went off to see our spiritual directors, monks of the community, one by one. I sat with mine in a little room with a box of tissues and a clock in his sight line, but not in mine. How's it going? He asked. Really bad, I said. I told him about what had been going on, which I was sure he knew about, and let rip about the foolishness and unkindness of some of the people who I had to live with and work it out with. Go on, he said. I paused and thought and said, I'm not as kind as I thought I was. I'm not as brave as I thought I was. I'm not as tolerant as I thought I was. I'm not as clever as I thought I was. I'm not as honest as I thought I was. There was a pause and he said, oh, that's good. <laughs> and it was. The problem was not the awfulness of others, the problem was the awfulness of me, so stuck in my self-regard that I couldn't see how marginal my angst was to what was happening all around me. And the only thing I could do about it was deal with my own awfulness, because the awfulness of others was for them to deal with. And besides, how could I even begin to see straight until I'd cleared my own eyes of obstruction? I fantasized about escaping back into my old life, and when some friends came to stay for a weekend nearby, I almost asked them to take me home with them. But I knew there was no escape. There never is. And I waved them off to return to that intense little world of slamming doors and endless drama and my own moral incompetence and what had to be done. On our college retreat at a convent on the clifftops at Whitby, I went for a walk alone. It was a beautiful, cold afternoon, the sky smudgy and opal, the sea dark and fierce. I climbed down a long flight of steps, which led down in a zigzag from the cliff top to the promenade and walked towards the harbour. Big waves were rolling in from far out to sea, turbulent, the colour of iron. But nearer in, the waves calmed down and settled in a band of still water, almost glassy, where the seagulls were resting. There it seemed to gather itself and begin its push into the shore, picking up power and movement and forming a greeny dark ridge, which then so beautifully curled over into itself, releasing a crest of off-white foam, which rolled over the now darker water like a mushroom cap curling over the dark gills beneath. And then it spent itself in a crash of white foam, breaking onto the rocks with amazing violence. I walked on and saw a red sign ahead mounted on a pole saying, Steps. It stood at the top of a flight of stone steps with metal rails leading down not onto the beach, revealed at low tide, I supposed, but into the crashing, foaming sea. 
I stood and looked at this sign. Was it a warning or an invitation? Step this way, it seemed to say, not onto the pleasure beach you seek, but into this chaos that awaits you and promises you new birth. Thank you. Thank you. Some questions have been coming in. That's great. Please, we need some more. So uh, scribble down your question on your uh, program and then hold it up. It will be collected. Um, Richard, thank you very much. Um, some questions are coming in. And there's a question here which I think would be a good way to start. You, you said at that moment of conversion that you wept. And um, a question has come in. What do you think the weeping was about? I think the weeping was about encountering something that I had only ever intimated, something that was buried very, very deep in my own past and my sense of where I was in the world. And it was that beyond the horizon of my own ridiculousness and incompetence and occasionally awfulness, there was extraordinarily light and grace and love which offered me... Uh, the hope of a life transformed. It was encountering, what it was, I realize now, was encountering the reality of Jesus Christ, the fathomless riches, title taken from St. Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, as I'm sure you recognize, Mark. Mm, I do, um, straight away. <laughs> uh, and it was that, and realizing that the love that I yearned for, and yet had felt was out of reach, or not real, or not there, was indeed there. And that, that I was safe, and that I was known, and fully known, not glossed, but known and loved. And that offered me the hope and the reality of a new life. And that was, a, you know, who wouldn't cry? Do you think that that's a major part of your conversion? Because in the earlier part of this book, there's a lot of talk about self-hate, self-doubt, uh, unlovability, whether it's physicality, or inside, and, and here you started to see that actually you might be lovable and loved? Yes, I think that's true. I think an appalling statistic that if you're a young gay man or woman, you are four times more likely to attempt suicide mm -hmm. than a straight man or woman. I'd like to see, think that that statistic would diminish now as uh, being gay becomes less and less an issue that people uh, might feel anxious about. But actually it seems to be a fairly robust statistic. And I think like lots of, I was one of them, like lots of people who go through that experience, you learn at an age uh, of a you know, formative age uh, of your own undesirability, your own unloveliness. And also, more than that, a sense of actually being at odds with the kind of mainstream world. Some people rather relish that, don't they? A sort of arabour take on it and sort of enjoy the obliqueness of the angle. Mm -hmm. And I enjoyed some of that. But I think I also felt that I was somehow exiled from the business of life. And that pained me. Mm. Um, of course, I realized that that was not the case at all. That what I'd done was simply internalize um, a kind of hostile and antipathetic uh, assessment of me that was coming from, from outside, really. 
And the irony is, of course, you might think that the Christian church would be the last place a young gay man might go to find himself, or a young gay woman herself, um, feeling fully human. But it's actually where I did first feel fully human mm. because I discovered that the likeness of Christ was in me, that Christ wished to restore in spite of my imperfections and efforts to mar it or blur it. That distinction between guilt and shame you talk about uh, gay people committing suicide or trying to commit suicide, <clears throat> quite often it's about shame, guilt being I've done something wrong, shame being I feel I am something wrong. That shame was also there, which you were fighting against in this gay identity you were seeking. Yeah. But it came to fruition most in your faith. Is yeah. That this is not, you'd think that would be... I've seen lots of people in whom faith has often struck me as a kind of substitute, actually, or an excuse for not fully exploring the fullness of humanity into which we are called. Mm -hmm. And yet I would remind us that St. Irenaeus, one of the great uh, early fathers, described the glory of God as a person fully alive. Mm -hmm. And I think that's right. And I think Jesus Christ calls us into, into living fully. And I love that passage... In the New Testament where you hear about, Jesus says, go to your room, your, your private place, and there pray in secret to your Father. And I've always thought of that as an internal space, the space in which you hoard and store the stuff about you that's dark, the stuff about you that's difficult, the stuff about you that if you lie awake at night thinking about it, your armpits spurt in a little anxious fanfare of ghastliness. That's where you encounter the risen Christ. And that's where you encounter the love and the grace, the fathomless love and grace of Jesus Christ. The, and the other reason, you know, I wanted to write about this stuff because I wanted, <laughs> I said to someone the other day, I wanted people reading this book to feel uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And my friend said, if there were a literary prize for making your readers feel uncomfortable, <laughs> it's in the bag. <laughs> um, and that's not simply, and it was not really because I just wished to disturb or shock or irritate or upset people. It was because what I love about that phrase, fathomless riches, what I love about Paul, endlessly fascinating, endlessly rich, endlessly rewarding study, um, is this sense about encountering this fathomless or unsearchable, as it's sometimes translated, phenomenon, this extraordinary thing that dazzles you, makes you blind so you can see, that deafens you so you can hear, that makes you dumb so that you can speak, that quite exceeds any category we attempt to put it into, be it language, be it thought, be it lived experience. It's that sense of the boundless, undimensioned grace of Christ coming into us and taking us out of ourselves. And I wanted to have something of that in the book. I wanted to do something that was itself excessive, that was itself uh, strained against the parameters of what could or should be said. Mm. And also, it just occurred to me that another way of translating fathomless riches is TMI. Mm -hmm. There is really too much information. And I wanted that to be one of the... I wanted the book to be a problem in that sense because I thought that... Because, again... What I want to do is preach the gospel to the Gentiles, Mark, actually. As professional religious Christian representatives, we spend a lot of our time literally preaching to the converted, and that's a very fine thing to do, and we'll be endlessly rewarded for doing that as faithfully and as intelligently and creatively as we can. 
But I'm just very conscious there are a great many people out there who find Christianity increasingly unintelligible, if they find it at all. And yet, I know that they have the hunger that I had. I know they want the food that I had. And yet we hand them a menu, if they, we hand it at all, which is in a language they don't understand, and everything's off <laughs> or overpriced. And I think what I would really like to think I would try to do, partly because of the strangeness of my life in having access to a sort of mainstream media thing, mm -hmm. is to try to find a way of preaching the gospel, but in a way that doesn't utterly betray it by turning it into something. You know, I'm 52, I'm a country parson, and I'm on Radio 4. I could drown in a sea of whimsy. Mm. <laughs> and I'm not going to do that if it's down to me, because it wouldn't be truthful, and it wouldn't tell what I would need to tell. And I think the book is an effort to try to rescue me from that sea of whimsy. I'm still stuck with a spurting uh, <laughs> armpit, actually. <laughs> but, um, more questions coming in. Please keep, keep going. Um, they're coming through here. Um, there's a question here about how did you articulate your conversion to the gay community? <laughs> well, interestingly, I not long after that experience in St. Albans, Hoburn, I eventually realised I went to King's College London where you were the absolute golden boy who'd left just before I arrived and everyone said, oh, Mark Oakley, Mark Oakley, Mark Oakley. It was a bit like being... They don't anymore, but thank <laughs> you very much. No, they really do. I was saying, <laughs> it was a bit like being in Rebecca. I felt like... <laughs> and there were so many Mrs. Danvers, you'll no doubt remember. But I went to study a theology degree because I thought I need to get to grips with the content. And I remember bumping into a friend of mine on the gay scene who said, what are you doing now? And I said, I'm at university. And he said, oh, really, what are you doing? And I said, theology. And he said, geology. And I said, no, theology. And he went, geology. And I said, no, theology. And he said, geology. He just couldn't hear the word. And then there was this sort of gradual realization that uh, I, I, what, I, mean, I was deeply ashamed of going to church. And I... I didn't really want anyone to know about it. The first time I was in Edinburgh and I came back to London, I've been at the Edinburgh Festival and I got off on impulse at York because I wanted to be somewhere where I didn't know anybody and where I'd be unobserved. And I went to York Minster and I bought a little silver cross in the shop and I realised now if I went in as a tourist, I was coming out as a participant. That was a very significant moment. And today on the tube, there's an advert from the Yorkshire Tourist Board saying, a long weekend in York can change your life. <laughs> <laughs> how true that was. How did, ask somebody, how did your celebrity status prepare you for priesthood? Oh, that's such a good question. I mean, people always think it must be an extraordinarily different life being going from being a pop star to being a parish priest. Lots of ways there are all sorts of continuities. I mean, mm. you are constantly performing. Uh, you wear a lot of gold lame at a time of day when most people are in tweed, <laughs> that sort of thing. Um, and you are up there, you're fronting something a lot. Um, the, the, the danger is, of course, is that uh, celebrity stokes the fire of its own celebrityness, if you see what I mean. Mm. Whereas we, if we do our job properly, are serving Jesus Christ, and our job is just not to get in the way mm. of Jesus Christ being Jesus Christ. Mm. So the great tragedy for a natural performer and an attention seeker who's ordained. Mm. <laughs> Why did I invite this man, I must say? Is that 
the better we do it, the less it's about us. Yeah. But that's the interesting thing. And it's one of the wonderful things, you know, we talk about the hunger of people for the things of the church, a mysterious hunger, that they would never think of coming to us to satisfy. But yes. where else will you learn that in order to possess yourself, you must give yourself away. In order to have anything worth having, you must give it away, and that the first will be last, and that the last will be first. These are very deeply counterintuitive, countercultural messages, and yet they have extraordinary power, and that power to transform lives and communities. And sorry, There's I a question you. come in that touches on something I was very aware of, that um, in, the, in the latter part of the book, you write quite often about prayer and how it distilled you, saw you through, gave you peace, particularly in what sounds like a pretty difficult theological college period in your life, where you actually, for the first time, I think, used the word evil uh, when you're talking about your theological training. I should say, I just say the line is, and anyone here who's been to theological college will get this, I don't think I really believed in evil and think I, until I went to theological college. <laughs> but I think anyone who's been part of a monastic foundation, some might say a cathedral chapter too, would know. Yes. And it's because, isn't it? It's because that corporate effort of trying to live in the light can cast some very dark shadows. Mm -hmm. It's the nature of being human. And those places are laboratories for that. So the question, what, what is prayer for you and, and what's it doing? Prayer for me is my best chance of putting myself in the way of God, I think. I live in a world, literally, in a world of competing frequencies. And there's an awful lot of static in the bandwidth. And there's an awful lot of distraction. And yet there is a pure, clear signal in there if you can but lock onto it. And I never lock onto it, but you can occasionally turn the dial and catch it in all that competing chatter and hiss. And prayer is my way of doing that. I learned it at Murfield. It was a survival technique because I found Murfield incredibly grueling, particularly the first year. I'm not the only person who went to theological college and just discovered how grueling really? it can be. But it was going early to chapel before anyone else was up, if I could get up that early, and spending half an hour in front of the Blessed Sacrament. And a Romanian monk actually gave me a metanoi, a knotted string. And on each knot, you just say the Jesus prayer, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Round and round, round and round, day in, day out, morning and evening. And just gradually, you just begin to admit that frequency more. Yeah. And I know that might sound like you know, most you walk into a religious bookshop or something and when you get to the section marked prayer what you see is a misty valley and a sunset don't you mm. and it's not that at all it's the m62 it's old compton street it's where you live i hated that film love eat pray whatever it was called oh yes you know where somebody discovers that they have to go to bali to discover some sort of spiritual awakening if yes. you can't discover it on your kitchen floor you're not going to discover it everywhere and so that was prayer opens us up to that and also the really the clincher for me was that what came back was so surprising and if I tried to offer as I invariably didn't do some kind of self uh, justifying uh, reason for my own self-advancement or da, 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 that little ping of sonar comes back mm. that says perhaps not um, yeah the yeah. ancient Assyrians of course had a word for prayer which was the same as opening up a clenched fist. Yeah. That sort of, <clears throat> that uh, slow and painful, because we often walk around with 
very tense, gripped hands. But the idea of opening it up, opening your life up like a flower in the sunshine, um, is, is, is a strong sense of what I got was happening for you. Yeah. Um, and that simple Jesus prayer was obviously very important and still is. Yeah. Is that something that you find yourself... Well, because the great irony is, is that in, once you're ordained priest, your job is to make that happen for other Others, people. Yes. And in making that happen for other people, what you risk is it happening for you. Yep. So um, I have... Um, I got a royalty statement from something and I converted, without the permission of the parsonages board, our attic into an oratory. <laughs> so I do actually have... Because in church, especially if you're a parish priest... Mm. Uh, you've been a parish priest, you know what that's like. You're constantly doing stuff mm -hmm. and uh, trying to enable other people to have to lock onto that transcendent axis in the horizontal axis of the here and the now. Mm. Um, so I just have to be pretty disciplined about it. Mm. The real threat to my prayer life is social media. Mm -hmm. Because I have, whether I like it or not, a big investment in Twitter and Facebook, partly because I love it, Partly also because it has become a form of ministry. Mm -hmm. um, that, that doesn't sound too grandiose or self-deluded to say so. But it means that early in the morning, when I get the stuff done, you know, I'm, I'm on Twitter and on Facebook posting my saint of the day or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And that can often erode the most valuable time. Which is, and of course, every time I skip, when I get back to it, Fortunately, God is endlessly patient and, you know, uh, he's not gone off while I've been busy tweeting. Um, but I came to something, I went to a monitor, I did a documentary for Radio 4 about Gregorian chant. And I went to Cor Abbey on the Isle of Wight, which is a Roman Catholic Benedictine house. And the minute I sat in there, I thought, why aren't I here mm. all the time? Well, I know why I'm not there all the time, but I also know why I wish I was there all the time, mm -hmm. some of the time. Mm -hmm. Lots of questions coming in. Thank you. Uh, keep them going. What part does the Bible play in your life? Well, you'll be encouraged to hear, <laughs> whoever asked that question, an absolutely central and fundamental one. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm in the liberal Anglican tradition, uh, inspired by the kind of rather the notion derived from Richard Hooker and the divines of that period and character who speak of scripture, reason and tradition as the three-legged stool of Anglicanism. And that's good for me. I'm at home in that. That works for me. But I only really, another great discovery of mine, well, I mean, of course, the Bible is just you know, a given. You hear it all the time. When I went to do my theology degree, what I discovered was Paul in the original Greek. And that for me was a second revelation because I encountered in the words of scripture something incredibly exciting and immediate mm. and charged. And all of a sudden, it was like scripture all of a sudden began to sound for me. I thought I'd, it's like I'd had a wax buildup. <laughs> Sorry about all these bodily oh, things that are stressing disgusting. you terribly, Mark. Um, I said I wanted to make people feel uncomfortable. Um, <laughs> But it was as if my ears were syringed. Mm -hmm. It was, Paul can have that effect of mm. making your ears syringed. And all of a sudden that opened up the New Testament and through the New Testament then the Old Testament too. And then really at Murfield, it was Ephesians again. Ephesians for me, I did my thesis on, in fact, um, Fathomless Riches and Akishniaston. Plutus, as of course you know, Mark. Indeed, yes. Um, uh, uh, that's what I wrote my thesis on. Mm. Um, it was the stuff about Jesus Christ is 
breaks down the hostility that divides us. I was in a very divided community of Christians and hearing that scripture read into the heart of that community in the middle of its life of prayer was extraordinarily powerful. And of course, you know, scripture is that which gives us our identity, our shape. Mm. It gives us the standards to which we aspire. It reminds us, it gives us the lie of the land. It's inexhaustibly rich and commanding. Mm. I do think for that very reason that we owe it our best attention. And I went through a very rigorous training in New Testament in particular uh, methodology and interpretation at King's College London, as indeed you did. Mm. Uh, and some t- my, my thesis, my thesis is, on the, is in the library at Leeds University, where I checked the other day to see how many times it had been consulted, and the answer is none. <laughs> <laughs> it's called actually Fathomless Riches, question mark, a critique of the United Bible Society's fourth edition of the Greek text of the Epistle. I think he's Ephesians. trying to get you to consult it. Uh. <laughs> But it was, I I got fascinated by textual criticism. Textual criticism, uh, it's not looking at the Bible, it's looking at the textual tradition. How did this version of this verse end up in this Bible? And trying to work out what was the earliest version of that and why people made the choices they made. It's highly technical and highly detailed. And when I was writing my thesis, I was next door in the library to a biblical theologian who was writing about Colossians, which is very closely related to Ephesians, as you know. And we would go off, bunk off, and have a fag and a cup of coffee and talk about our stuff. And I used to drive him mad because he used to say, da-da-da-da-da, and I say, you can't say that. And he'd say, well, why can't I say that? I said, because that reading is unreliable. It's latent Byzantine reading. And if you look at the Alexandrian readings, you'll see that you can't sustain that. And in the end, he said to me, talking to you is like having someone explain the ring cycle by looking very closely at the second bassoonist music stand. (laughs) (laughs) And I kind of get that. Mm. But the point is, do we take the Bible seriously? Mm. Do we take learning. Do we take fides querens intellectum seriously? Well, I hope we do. And we owe the Bible our best reading. And do you end up with something which entirely misses the burning of Valhalla and the fall of the gods? No, you don't. You get something which more richly informs it, it seems to me. I love, no, I love discovering how little I know. And I remember... I'm sure she won't be here, but I remember a woman saying to me once that she really liked a certain bishop because he demystified religion. And I thought, I want to re-mystify religion. Mm. Yes, deepen the mystery rather than resolve it. Uh, There's a lot of sort of laughter, maybe, and raised eyebrows and a bit of giggling about naughty vicar. But I I want to think about sin, Um, because one of the monks said uh, to you, according to the book, that sin is not paying attention. And um, my guess is that there are those who think that not paying attention is not the standout sin in your own story. (laughs) Actually, that's wrong. Okay. When I say not paying attention, it's exactly the same as tuning into the divine frequency in the crowded radio dial. Yeah. Why do you tune into that? To pay attention. What does it profit you to pay attention? Well, it puts you right. So the question here is, what is sin and repentance? Well, sin is <laughs> scrambling around the frequencies 
looking for Radio 1 Extra or for Heart FM or for whatever it is, when you could be tuning into that frequency. It's not paying attention to that frequency. It's allowing ourselves to be diverted into the various things we do for our own gratification or for our self-promotion, all the sorts of things that we do. And repentance is simply that realization that be, because that stuff comes out of our anxiety. Mm-hmm. It comes up about the nature of being human, mm-hmm. of competitive creatures in a competitive world in which we contend with each other for basic resources and in which murderous impulses, as intense as that, and sometimes more anodyne versions of that emerge, mm-hmm. softened in society, softened by civilization, but nonetheless there. All those things which take us away from the central truth that stands before us in the person of Jesus Christ, that we are made in his image and called to participate in the work of restoring the likeness of Jesus Christ within us. And when we encounter that, then we encounter who we really are. Mm-hmm. So repentance is more than just saying sorry. We call that an apology. Yeah. What is repentance? Well, I suppose metanoia is okay. the word that comes to mind. And I'm, very, I'm fascinated more and more, in fact, by the theology of the Orthodox Church, the Eastern Churches, where the notion of metanoia, which as I understand it, is something which describes, it describes what I said earlier about, on the one hand, that dynamic tension between the moment, the poetry of the vision of the epiphany, mm-hmm. and then the prose of Deanery Synod. <laughs> that, I'm sorry, <laughs> you don't have to go, no, that's, that's even worse than a squirting <laughs> armpit. <laughs> <laughs> But what I mean is that what you need to do is in that tension, there's that constant turning uh-huh. day by day in the sort of daily realities of the stuff we have to deal with, the daily realities of being who we are, living our lives, contending in the world, yeah. dealing with the old Adam, what a persistent fellow he is, mm. and admitting that light and admitting that air and admitting the grace that is there waiting for us, had we but the wit to turn more readily, more steadily, towards it. You see people who turn mm. quickly and well and surely and, uh, and others of us who struggle to do that. But I think that's what it is. I mean, I don't think, what I don't think it is, is one single decisive moment after which everything is different. No. I think it's partly that. I think it's also the echoing explosion that works its way through the landscape of your life and mm-hmm. adventure. There are a few gay questions emerging. Really? Um, mm-hmm. Does it sound like what the interior design? <laughs> <laughs> is the have one feature wall? That's what I've learned. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say it's really weird sitting interviewing Richard Coles every Saturday morning. I hear you doing this. I feel in completely the wrong seat here, but it's rather fun um, <laughs> for you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, okay. Is the church still the enemy? The church is a fellowship of... And I'm not going to even begin to say that, because you couldn't read that anywhere. Yes, yes, I think I've read that somewhere. The church is both friend and foe. The church uh-huh. is both your best hope of salvation and the hardest thing you'll struggle through to get there. And I wouldn't want to diminish that or minimise that at all. I sort of came into the church at the... Uh, end of the 80s, beginning of the 90s, when if you were a gay person, you thought you were looking at an organization that was catching up with something that the secular world had also begun to get used to as something that was fine and not a problem. Mm -hmm. And I think, like a lot of other Anglicans in the liberal uh, spectrum, I thought that that was simply a matter of 
catch-up. Mm -hmm. Well, how wrong I was. And the important thing to recognize in that is that in our diversity, well, our diversity is not simply a slogan, is it? It's a reality. And what diversity means is that you will find yourself accountable to and having to find a common purpose with people who fundamentally disagree with you on matters that are of uh, overwhelming importance. Mm -hmm. Now, if you can do that in a way where you're not left with blood on the carpet or where someone doesn't throw their toys out of the pram or handbags at dawn. If you can find a way of doing that, then I think you're doing pretty well. And one of the things that most impressed me about Rowan Williams was the invisibility of his achievement. I think one of the real achievements of Rowan Williams was that it wasn't as bad as it could have been, because it could have been really, really bad. And I know lots of people in the liberal end of things were disappointed with Rowan, but I think that might not be entirely just. And I also think that if we can, as Anglicans, work out a way of trying to sustain a common life in spite of those irreconcilable differences, we not only discover something that's of immense value to us, we might offer that not just to the wider church, but to the wider world. We live in a centrifugal world full of indignation, full of people with hair triggers of anger and recrimination and, uh, and storming off into the sunset. I think if we can just work on ways of trying to sustain a common purpose, a common vision, hmm. at enormous cost, sacrifice all round, that might be something actually rather wonderful. That's what I think on a good day. I was going to say, <laughs> I get the theory, yeah. but is the church a safe place for a gay person to try and find um, a life in today? Is, well, would you say, come on in, because you're going to be safe and shame is going to slip away? I would say, in my church, you will be. Yeah. I would say there are lots of other churches where you will be. Mm -hmm. I would not be so confident that I could say that about some other churches. Mm -hmm. And I don't wish by that to sort of demonize those other churches, say that they come from a very different place mm -hmm. where they make evaluations of human sexuality in a different way from how, you know, I'm not going to go yeah. on about that. The church, is a, the church in its widest sense, oh, that's such a difficult question, Mark. That's such a difficult question. I've had people come to me, and it's not just simply people who, I remember, I used to work in a very, very tough parish where people had very, very tough lives indeed. And I remember doing a funeral of a boy who'd been murdered, um, which was not an uncommon experience in that parish. And he was only a teenager, and lots of people came to church. And they were the kind of people we wouldn't normally see, and it was good. And someone said to me afterwards, wouldn't it be great if they came back Sunday by Sunday? And I thought, would it? Mm -hmm. What do we offer them? Do we offer them the fullness of life that is the glory of God? Or do we offer them a half-life or an incomplete life or something less than that? Mm. I've never forgotten that. And, um, and I think that's something that we have to take seriously. Mm. And when you feel that yourself, you work extra hard to reach out quite often, hopefully. <laughs> well, a lot of reaching out in my CV, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Here's a question. Uh, how far do you think your own identity as a celibate gay priest legitimizes the Church of England's demanding the same of others 
who may share your calling to ordained ministry but not celibacy. What would you say to a young gay person in such a position as they engage in the process of discernment? What a very searching question. I would first of all say that while the life of Dave, me and David, my partner, who's also ordained, conforms to uh, what um, the bishops, insofar as the bishops can ever be said to have reached a resolution about anything, but insofar as they have, it conforms to that expectation. Not because I think that expectation uh, reflects something which is wholesome, good and true, but simply because that's what it is. It is what it is. And therefore you have to be obedient to it? I accept the discipline of it, mm -hmm. and I do so. Also, I'm 52, so it's not love's young dream, Mark. So in a sense, the notion, I know lots of people uh, married in civil partnerships, in partnerships, whatever, mm. who the thought of finding an excuse not to have to have sex <laughs> would be quite a welcome one. <laughs> anyway, um, but I digress. But it's a discipline that I accept. It's a discipline that we live by. I have to say, it's it's not easy, and it's not always it's not always easy. And in some ways, it's not also equally balanced in our relationship. But it's something we do. Would I say that to you? No, I wouldn't. No, I wouldn't. What would you say? I'd say go and live your life. Discover what it is to be lovable and lovely and loved. Discover what it is to be fully human. That's what you need to do. And let us sort ourselves out. That's what I'd say. I have said that. Yeah. I'm no longer an examining chaplain, you might understand. And it frustrates you that the church leaders of, of our church at the moment are not saying that? Is this a frustration? Is this something you just shrug shoulders about? No. No, I don't. I think the really important, and another reason why the book is as candid as it is, because I, one of the things I discovered was that we talk a lot about sexuality and not about sex. And I thought... And there are all sorts of good reasons for doing that. I don't want to embarrass the nice ladies and gentlemen, obviously. And also I have to face you know, a parish and the wider church from time to time. But you can, for good reasons, do something bad. And the bad thing is, is that we don't have an honest conversation. And until we at least have an honest conversation, mm. we're not going to get anywhere with this. Mm -hmm. So we have to have an honest conversation. And that means going to places that are perhaps uncomfortable and difficult and awkward for people. Mm -hmm. But... Otherwise, we're lost, actually. Mm. What yes. is truth, said Pilate to Jesus Christ? Mm. T. Estin Alathia, mm. I believe. Mm. Well, no, that's another question. We must well, we talk a lot about truth in the church, but are not very good at honesty. I mean, that, that seems to be part of the problem here. As I once said to someone... Which you've helped with, I think. Uh, well, thank you. well, I once said to someone, the problem we have in the church is with the H word. And they said homosexuality. And I said, no, honesty. Mm. Yeah. Other questions coming in. Um, you, what would your desert island disc luxury be? <laughs> well, I've worked this out already because of the desperate hope... Have you that set this question up? <laughs> Somebody just asked this. Uh, the crown jewels. <laughs> It'd be nice to dress up on high and holy days. <laughs> you mean you don't already? <laughs> Not quite to that standard, no. <laughs> okay. And if you were to be offered a golden hello now, and it wasn't a washer-dryer, what would you ask for now, ask somebody? Oh, free dog walking. Free dog walking. Yeah, free we dog both walking. have Dachshunds, so uh, we, we share a love of the same dog. And Mark and I, in fact, we both used to attend the most extraordinary group called Dachshunds in London. Wait. <laughs> 
And there's a bit where we used to meet on a Sunday in Hyde Park or St James's Park, and they would literally be three dozen Dachshunds tearing each other apart, red in tooth and claw, yes. and us standing around looking indulgent. <laughs> well, you did. I was looking high. Well, your Fritz has much better behaved than my Daisy Moo Moo. <laughs> <laughs> Daisy Moo Moo, is that your...? Well, that's the oldest one. Oh, OK, yeah. right. Um, <laughs> there's a question here about... What do you say to those who may not believe in your conversion and haven't encountered many? You must... I mean, I remember you said that Jimmy Somerville wrote to you saying, I don't get it, doll, but, you know, good yeah. luck sort of thing. But what do you, how do you describe this to those who just say, yeah, right? Well, I can't... Uh, that, well, that's, that's something. Uh, what I would try to do is, I think, try to catch them perhaps with a detail that is unexpected mm. try to do something which has got a bit of grain and texture to it something you have to try very hard don't you not to we have this again it's a clergy problem isn't it we have forms of words where we stand at I went to a funeral yesterday the, the wonderful David Trendle at King's College London and uh, you know you hear the sentences as the as the funeral begins, and the wonderful thing about that is that those words have a dignity, an existence before you, an existence after you. You merely vocalise them, and they're already there. And while that's great, you need also sometimes to find ways that catch people, because that stuff can be lapidary, can't it? And people don't engage with it. It slides past them, if noticed at all. So I think you have to try to sort of catch people's attention as best you can and have some faith about what we do you know i do think one of the problems for clergy is that often because of the nature of our lives and where we are in the church and the rest of it you can sometimes lose confidence i don't mean faith i mean lose you can lose that too but lose confidence in who we are and what we do we have a gospel to proclaim so let's proclaim mm. Question about, are you tempted by the whimsy? Do you think you should be more outspoken and political having this privileged position of media access? That's a really good question. I mean, yeah, to lapse into whimsy is, is, uh, is a temptation, actually, partly because... I like it because there's something quite light touch about it, and I'm a great believer. I was, my first vicar at St. Albans Hope was John Gaskell, who was mm. a wonderful, wonder, is a wonderful man, a wonderful preacher, and a wonderful priest with the lightest of touches. And I learned from him that the graver the matter, the lighter the touch, if you can mm. find a way of doing that without seeming facetious or almost mm. the point, is very good. I'm also conscious that, for instance, on Saturday Live, it is not a pulpit, mm. but I what I think I would try to do is to try to have conversations and engagements with people on Saturday Live that would not be entirely uncontinuous with the sort of conversations I would have pastorally as a priest. And also simply just a very simple tactic, which is I always ask to be identified as the Reverend Richard Coles. If I'm on telly, I always wear a dog collar because I think we have a place, we have a gospel to proclaim. We had an honoured place in the mainstream conversation that other people were having once. Mm. Somewhere like here, of course, you still do. Mm. But I think in lots of, for lots of people and in lots of places, the voice of religious people, the voice of faith, is increasingly marginalised or so mad and hectoring that it becomes deafening and awful. Mm. So I think if we can try to sustain a place in that mainstream conversation, 
that's a really, really good, good thing to do. I mean, what but I always feel proud about when you're doing that Saturday Live is that we're so used to clergy up there trying to give answers to everything, but there you are asking questions. Mm. You're showing interest in people's lives and you are curious. And I think that's um, a very good uh, little snapshot of, of a part of Christian life that a lot of people don't get because we're always on transmit. Yeah, you know, yeah. we're given five minutes and we feel we have to have a thought for the day. And there is you saying, no, your life's interesting, tell me about it. And I, I think that's a very important thing. I got told off the other day by someone in the church for saying, uh, I'd done a thing with um, uh, one of the Lord Just Justices, uh, uh, an appeal court judge and a high court judge. Mm. And this person said to me, well, I hope you reminded them of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And actually, they're both practicing Christians. I actually might learn something about the gospel of Jesus Christ by listening to them. The assumption that somehow we're charged with this to go out into a world of mm -hmm. people who aren't already there. Mm -hmm. I can remember once being with, in Soho early one morning in the red light district of Soho in the 1990s. And there was a group of Christians out there banging tambourines and going, it was early in the morning. And a window opened and a woman looked out who was obviously a local worker. And she looked out and she went, will you shut up? And they said, but we want to share the gospel of Christ with you. She said, I am a Christian. The two questions just come through, which are a little bit related, so I'll put them together. Do you have any advice for someone who likes the idea of faith but has yet to find it? And could we ask Richard, says somebody on Twitter, if he encounters doubt? Um, I'll do that in order, I think, if mm. I may. I think if you think this might work for you, go to a church, sit at the back. Um, don't think you've, you, know, you need to have passed the highway code before you get there. Go there, sit there, kneel where prayer has been valid, listen to the strange sounds it makes, smell the peculiar smells, the creaking, the wheezing, all that stuff. Let that just switch on receive, I think. Mm. And that would be, and that's wonderful. Talk to people, meet people, share it. Doubt. I doubt myself more than I used to, I think, mm. because of my own, you know, silliness and temptation to wander off and all that kind of thing, and my own powers, such as they are. Um, I doubt the church mm -hmm. because it's so bloody awful sometimes. <laughs> I've never doubted God. Never. I've never, no, no, not from the moment of, no, really. not from that moment of conversion in St Albans Hoban. Mm. I've never, for a second, felt that diminish. Or but does that find it difficult to minister to people who do? I get asked to do a lot of atheist funerals, so I hope I may be have. I'm mean, partly simply because most of my friends are not religious, mm. and. I have a sort of unofficial chaplaincy almost at the BBC because I've been there for a long time. Mm. And, and so when things happen, people lose someone, often they ask me to mm. help in some way. Mm. I don't think that's entirely functional. Part of it is someone who can get us through the creme in one piece. Mm. Perhaps we transmit on frequencies ourselves, or rather we relay frequencies ourselves that others might pick up. I don't know. Mm. I don't know. That's where we're different, because I think I do doubt. doubt. But you um, were always in, weren't you? 
Yes, okay. Yes, I'm a survivor who's found a way of surviving, and you've, you were not in a cave Correct me if I'm wrong, but you, you grew up in faith yes. and, never, and were always in it. You were one of those people who mm. was always at home in it, mm-hmm. whereas for me it was that dramatic mm. conversion. is perhaps an interesting mm. conversation for another time about that. And uh, Graham Greene, uh, of course, once said, the trouble is I don't quite believe my unbelief. Yeah. And I think a lot of people are in that space at the moment. And, yeah. and this, import, this conversation is very important, I think, to, to, to create the honesty that's needed. I do think also we worry too much about belief. Mm. I mean, there's a great tendency of the churches, or particularly the churches at the more reformed end of the spectrum, to produce these extraordinary lists of articles of faith or confessions yes. to which you must sign up before you can be considered kosher. Yeah. And I would rather get people in and active and doing stuff, belonging, mm. before believing. I don't worry. And also, you know, the fathomless riches of Christ, the grace of God. It's not something you can just appropriate or learn or master. It's something you must let, as you say, you unclench that fist mm-hmm. and the flower, like Zuzu's petals mm. in your fist, responds to the light and the moisture, you know. Well, there are, it's interesting, you've come back to, we've just got about five minutes. We, there are a few more questions that have come in wanting to prod you a bit more about prayer. Yeah, sure. Um, somebody has said prayer is your best chance of getting in front of God, which is what you said, getting in his way. Best chance, can you say more? What does that mean? And when you say prayer locks you into God's frequency, do you mean quasi-meditation? I suppose I mean the person says, how do you pray when alone? I think people out there are wanting, we all need help with it. And when we hear somebody who says it's really important and has helped you get through difficult times, we want to know how. Well, I want to make a distinction, I think, between the notion of sort of private prayer. The whole idea of a private prayer seems to me to be not a coherent idea in that when we pray, we pray the prayer of the church. So... You know, the, the idea that somehow a, an anchoress in her cell is somehow occupied in a, in a private activity is not the case. Uh, because I, what I loved at Murfield, which was the you know, monastic community which I lived alongside for two years, was that it was like the bus. You got up in the morning, you said matins. In the evening, you said evensong and then Compline. And it was just there. It was almost as if you just waited for the bus. You got on the bus. You sat on the bus and then you got off the bus. So it just has this kind of objective life of its own. It's one of the reasons why I can't bear, oh, this is such a confession, but the sort of liturgies you often get where people think they have to inject every moment with vivid distinctiveness. Mm. You know, mm. for start, you can't get that much vivid distinctiveness mm. that often. I love the idea about prayer just being, it's like those words of the funeral. Right, isn't it? They're there before you and they're there after you're gone. You're just vocalising them for a moment. So what you're doing is submitting yourself, submerging yourself, addressing yourself, offering yourself, sacrificing yourself to that corporate experience and dynamic of prayer. Um, I do think it's really good if you can. You have to be disciplined about it, especially in a world like ours in which there is so much demand on our attention. Hmm. Last night I was with a friend and we walked around Piccadilly Circus. And I hadn't been to Piccadilly Circus for a while. Simple country parson. 
but just the sheer amount of information you had to process, mm -hmm. just walking through it, not to get run over, other people, shop fronts, neon, buses, cars, taxis, light, dark, shade, all that stuff. I sometimes think that we experience our lives as, it's like someone's grabbing you and is shouting at you and shaking you like that. Mm. And if you can just make a disciplined choice to set aside some time, a place, not walking the dog, not doing the ironing, not washing up, but actually doing that. It's such a basic, fundamental thing, and yet so easily relegated um, because other tasks are more pressing or urgent. We think we can sort of tack it on as an afterthought. Mm. I think and that's why churches, if you can find one open, go to one, sit in one, early in the morning, late at night. This is a place where prayer has been valid and there's something... I'm one, I have a wonderful 14th century church. Early in the morning on a Sunday, I go there before anyone else arrives. And if it's after dawn, the light comes through the clear story and just a little print of light intensifying, moving across the roof. Mm. And I think of the bloke 700 years ago who sat where I sat mm. in silence, mm -hmm. waiting for people to turn up mm. and saw exactly the same thing. Mm. And that seems to me to be, mm. if you can just tune into that, be mindful of that, that would be a really good thing. But it's, it's quite simple. The simple thing is, find some time and some space to do it. Go to church, do those things, mm. and it will you know, reward. Well, the evening's come to an end, unfortunately, but there are two questions that just ask you quickly to say... Uh, about what might be happening next. How do you see the next five years of your ministry and what's the title of the second volume going to be? The second volume is Into the Harvest. Mm -hmm. It's a working title of Into the Harvest, which is in fact the last, the chapter, last chapter heading of this book mm -hmm. because that's what it is, Into yeah. the Harvest. Mm -hmm. um, unpack that phrase another time. Mm -hmm. The next five years will at least five more appearances on QI, obviously it would be the <laughs> of significant importance. Um, I've also enticingly got a meeting next week with someone who organises the clergy for Mediterranean cruises. Ah. <laughs> he also, as a coder to this conversation, he said, we also organise gay cruises from Miami. And I said, I'll do anything as long as I don't have to take my shirt off. <laughs> So, um, I mean, what, seriously, what I would love to do is to continue doing what I'm doing in Findon, which is having the immense privilege of being parish priest in a place where the church is absolutely the centre of the community, where we do our very best in that great parish tradition of just trying to organise goodness, mm. if we can. Mm -hmm. Just to organise goodness, to give a community a pulse, a heartbeat, an attentiveness to other people. We have issues, you know, we've got lots of my parishioners, if they have jobs at all, are working in jobs in logistics, as they call it, mm. on zero-hour mm. contracts. I'm involved with the local uh, housing association, Wellingborough Homes. I'm a board member of that. And one of the most uh, rewarding parts of what I do is working on that with people who are actually providing housing for people in very difficult circumstances, demand for housing rising, resources to provide it dwindling, a political coalition government which doesn't prioritise that as it should, but to get actively involved in providing decent housing in which people can live more fully is a wonderful thing to do. So I'd be much more active in that. And, and finally, 
you've had a life so far, there's more to come, you've had a life where, you know, private jets, drugs, met lots of people, earned lots of money, also had tough times, loss of people you've loved, and yet this is the fathomless riches. What at the heart, at the end of the day, is the new found beauty of this faith for you? What at the heart of it really matters? Why is it now why you must write about it and call it the riches of your life? Because at the end of the furthest horizon of human seeking and toil and trouble and cruelty and darkness and depravity and experience, all that stuff, at the end of that, beyond the furthest horizon, through the cross, a way is opened up into a life of unimaginable joy that will make you joyful in life and give you hope where you might otherwise despair. And all of a sudden, this limitless, light-filled landscape that you only ever imagined, and didn't even imagine, just intimate. You know, for me, I get this, a midnight mass, the kids sing away in a manger. I can feel myself getting tearful about it. Now, away in a manger, I've been ordained for 10 years, and I still cry away in a manger. Oh, God. But yes. there is something about that, that sense of we're on the threshold of something remarkable. In the darkness yeah. of the night, a child is born. Yeah. A scrap of flesh and blood and bone in this filthy manger in a far-off place that's unimportant at a time of huge political crisis. The world's falling apart. The relationship is awkward. You know, that kind of... Something is coming of joy that making the angels sing in heaven. And all of a sudden, what you intimated hope for is fulfilled in a completely surprising and unexpected way. Mm-hmm. That's worth something, isn't it? Ladies and gentlemen, um, I could go on all night. I love this man. And... Um, I just want, I know, (laughs) that means he's paying dinner. Uh, I just want to say that um, this book obviously has got lots of um, uh, interesting reviews because people are, you know, titillated about a dog collar and, 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 and riotous living. But for me, at the end of the day, it, there are two things. Yes, there's lots of information in it about your life but between the lines it was for me about formation it was about about the painful process of realizing that we've all been given a gift and it's called your being and the gift that you sometimes realize a bit late on in life that you have to give back is your becoming and and this book really does spell that out and challenge you as you read it to read and listen to your own life very carefully and to see just how that becoming is shaping up. And uh, that's no mean achievement in this day and age, to use the language of faith in such a plausible and affecting way. And I was very moved by it at the end. Um, And the theology is very there. God loves you just the way you are, but he loves you so much he doesn't want you to stay like that. And for that, Richard, as well as all the other things you do, for that especially tonight, I want to thank you on behalf of everybody here. Thank you. Thank you.
you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.